Good morning. Thank you again for that song, that rendition of the psalm. Thank you for having me here. I would ask if you would turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 2. We are continuing in our series examining the church, the gathering, the called out ones, the gathering of the called out ones. And we are here now looking at Acts chapter 2. And our topic for this morning is going to be looking at the purpose of the gathering. Why has God called us out? To what purpose? And how do we do it? And so we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 2. We're going to pick up at verse 41. And we'll read to verse 47. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and at that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their possessions and property and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we come again into your presence by the virtue of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We have sung of his glory. We have sung of his sacrifice. We have sung of him taking our place and that it is in him alone that we stand. That is through him that you have gotten the victory. And so, Lord, we would pray that our our souls might bring forth a great harvest, that as we meditate in your word, as we consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, that we would run this race with endurance, that we would keep our eyes on him, and that we might find our purpose in his will and in your will for our lives. Lord, we we thank you for this time together. We ask your blessing on each person here and those who are uh, tuning in on Zoom. We just really pray that you might speak to each of us where we are and in our own corners of the world, Lord, we might be lights for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been looking at the gathering and looking at what it means that, that we have been called out to collectively gather together as God's people. And the first study that we did back in December was looking at the promise that Jesus made. Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That it was his promise that he would call out people from their homes and gather them together as a body and as a bride. And we looked at that in our second message, the portrait of the church in Ephesians chapter 5, where Christ's body and Christ's bride are united together in one portrait of his intimate relationship with us and our interconnectedness with one another as his bride and as his body. And then we looked at the power of the gathering. We examined how this was the message that God had for us, that there is power 
in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit and we are empowered by the gospel. That Paul would write, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But now we want to explore together this week and next week, what is God's design in gathering us together? What is God's purpose in calling us out? The the idea of a purpose is the reason for which something is done or created or for which something exists. Why does the church exist? Why have we been created? What is it that is the reason behind this, this grand enterprise that God has begun is it to evangelize the lost is that our primary purpose that as a gathering of god's people our mission is to reach those who do not believe is it to make disciples is that really the the purpose of the church is it to usher in the kingdom or prepare the way for the kingdom to come Or does the church really just exist to meet my needs, comfort my sorrows, teach my children, and then mourn my passing? Is that why the church exists? You know, as I mentioned last week, if we go to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians has been called the Magna Carta of the church. The letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians is one of the most concise descriptions of the church's purpose and the church's function and the church's mission. And in that first chapter of of that letter, Paul lays out the triune blessings that we have as God's people in Christ. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And beginning at verse 3 into verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 1, there is just one sentence. It is just one long sentence. In Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to verse 14, it's just one sentence. But in that sentence, we see the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit blessing God's people in Christ. And at every break in that blessing, at every break when it transitions from the Father to the Son and to the Spirit, at every conclusion of that section where it talks about the blessings of the Father, the blessings of the Son, and the blessings of the Spirit, we read these words in one way or another, to the praise of the glory of His grace, in verse 6. To the end that we who were first hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. And in verse 14, that we might be to the praise of his glory. Why is it that we are saved? What is the purpose in God calling us out of the world and bringing us together as a body into his, into his body and making us a corporate body, both in a local setting and universally speaking? In Ephesians chapter 2, we read this, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace toward us in Christ Jesus. Later on in that passage, it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. What is the purpose of those good works? Jesus told us, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. We exist for one purpose, 
We have been created for one purpose. We have been redeemed for one purpose, and that is to be the praise of his glory. I need an amen. We exist for his glory. Now, when you start to think about this, it can be very humbling. Because what does the psalmist pray? He prays not unto us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Everything we do must be done with this goal in mind to magnify and glorify God through Jesus Christ. It's not about me. And it's not about us. When we are tempted as so much in our culture here in the United States and North America, when we are tempted to boast of buildings and programs, when we exalt in numbers, in attendance, who are we really magnifying? When we talk about ministry and we talk about effectiveness and outreach, what is the goal? The question is not, is this popular or will this bring people in? Or will this work? Or will this turn people off? But does it glorify God and honor the name of Jesus Christ? When we step back and we begin to ask ourselves, what is our deep motivation? Like what is below the surface in the things that we do? What is it that we are uh, really striving for? What are the things we're afraid of that govern our decision-making? What is the reason for our doing anything? The Apostle Paul makes it clear, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, in the context of the gathering, what does that look like? What does that mean? What does that functionally look like for us as God's people? Now, we come to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. There's not a series on the church anywhere done by anybody who does not include Acts 2.42. You can't talk about the church gathering without looking at the first gathering of the church. And one of the challenges that we have in understanding Acts and applying Acts is looking at the book of Acts and asking ourselves this question, is what we're reading descriptive or is it prescriptive? What do I mean by that? See, if what we're reading is just describing how the early church gather, then gathered, then we can look at it from a historical perspective and say, wow, isn't that interesting? that they did that back then? Or when we read the book of Acts, is it prescriptive? In other words, like the doctor, when you go into the into the doctor's office and you say, I've got these symptoms, and the doctor prescribes to you a medication that will address those problems, is the book of Acts prescriptive? Is it God's prescription for the church? 
in how we are to function and how we are to act. Now, it's not so easy to actually make that distinctions sometimes. Because while on the one hand, we might quote Acts 2.42 and embrace it as prescriptive, we kind of ignore verse 44, where it says, and all those who believed were together had all things in common. It's been a long time since everybody sold their houses and brought the proceeds to the elders. So the question becomes, at what level do we understand something to be descriptive? This is what they did versus something that is prescriptive. This is what we should do. And part of the answer to that is looking at what the rest of the New Testament teaches. And what you find, for example, in the rest of the letters of the New Testament, you don't find exhortations, for example, for everybody to sell everything they had. You find exhortations about giving and generosity, but you don't find that pattern being prescribed after this historical setting. But what you do find in the rest of the New Testament are exactly what we're talking about in Acts 2.42, that the early church gathered and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And what we find in the rest of the New Testament, exhortations in all the rest of the letters that reinforce that pattern. And so what we can say is rather conclusively, I think, that at the very least, Acts 2.42 is not only descriptive, it is also prescriptive. But the thing about this is that we have to understand that the goal is not the thing itself. The goal is not just simply that we're devoted to doctrine. The goal is not that we're devoted only to fellowship or to prayer. The goal is that we are to glorify Christ in our devotion to doctrine. That we're to glorify Christ in our devotion to prayer. That we're to glorify Christ in our devotion to fellowship. And we're to glorify Christ in the breaking of the bread. And so let's just take a few minutes and unpackage some of these thoughts and see what prescriptions we might take for us today. We glorify God by being devoted to the apostles' doctrine. And this is the apostles' teaching. This is what they were teaching daily in the temple courts. This was them rehearsing what Jesus had said to them. It is them unpackaging the scriptures, which was at this point the old covenant, the law, the prophets, the, the witness of the, of the, of the, of the, the, the song of songs and the Psalms and Proverbs. It was them taking the scriptures and unlocking them with the life of Christ. And of course, as the New Testament is written, as the word of God is now committed to paper or to papyrus or to scrolls, we read in Hebrews, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And like the prophet Jeremiah, we can we can hear the voice of the Lord saying to us, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord and like a hammer that breaks rocks in pieces. Am I devoted to the teaching of the word? 
it is shocking. It is absolutely shocking how ignorant we have become as a society. More than half of Americans think Sodom and Gomorrah are husbands and wives and husband and wife in the Bible. That there is such a biblical illiteracy in our day that it is shocking. And it's not just among like unbelievers who've never opened the Bible. When it comes to our relationship with God, when it comes to our understanding of the way the world is, right? When we think about how we should think about life and how we should think about suffering and how we should think about the lost and how we should think about the church, what more valuable book is there than the Bible? And yet, There are believers who have never read the Bible from cover to cover. They've never finished reading the entire Bible. I know I've had conversations with them. People have been saved for 30 and 40 years, and they've never read the Bible from cover to cover. That if we were to check our screen time on our phones and then compare it to our FaceTime with the book, there'd be a great discrepancy, wouldn't there? I mean, if we ask ourselves certain fundamental questions, like, is the Bible inerrant? In other words, did God breathe into this book his thoughts? And did he ensure that what he wanted to be said was said and written down? And if that's true, then doesn't that make the Bible essential? That we can't get by without it. And doesn't it mean then that on many levels, multiple levels in our lives, the Bible is sufficient? But if one scholar put it this way, if we affirm in principle inerrancy, while rejecting its sufficiency in practice. In other words, we hold to the doctrine that the Bible is the God-breathed book, that God inspired it without error, without flaw, that we can trust it, but then we don't actually use it in our lives, that we don't actually consider it sufficient, that it's not the go-to manual for figuring this stuff out that if we don't actually have that attitude that this is God's word for us, to us, if we affirm inerrancy in principle while rejecting its sufficiency in practice, it's like saying your wife's perfect while having an affair. Being devoted to the word doesn't mean we worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible who's given us his word. But without that word, we would not even know who or how we should worship. We glorify God by making the Bible the foundation of our lives. We read it, we study it, we learn its precepts, we discuss its applications, we explore its depths. We glorify God by preaching his word without shame and apology, without compromise, 
We don't conform the message to our culture, but we conform our lives to its precepts. And of course, we've seen this in a lot of places, in a lot of, a lot of ways, where it, it's like the church follows the culture. Unfortunately, we're always like 30 years behind. But the reality is, is that we should not be following the culture. We should be preaching the word. Now, it doesn't mean that we ignore what's happening in the culture because we have to preach the word in the context of a culture. We glorify God by teaching his word, engagingly, excitingly, profoundly. I am a firm believer. I am a firm believer. It is a sin to bore people with the word of God. If this book is living and active and powerful, then I need to allow it to live in me. I need to let it speak through me. I let it need to be affect me. And if, if I can do that publicly, great. If I can't, I should not do that. God's given me a different gift. But the reality is, is that we need to be teaching the word of God. We need to be upholding its principles to the people. And we need to treat his word in such a way that it honors what it is. We don't glorify God if we treat his word, as one author says, as if the Bible is not living and active, that the gospel is not power. That the book is, in fact, a kind of old crusty thing that really should be safer after people have been softened up by our logic and understanding. If we act as though the Bible needs our help, that our words are more effective than the Bible's at reaching lost people, which is just another way of saying that God's word isn't good enough. So, on a practical level, what can we say? We glorify God by being devoted to the apostles' teaching, right? That's what is prescriptive for us in Acts 2.42. So how often and when do you get together with others to read and talk about the word? In other words, you come here and you're, you're passively listening to what I'm saying, which is fine. It's a definite method that was used. Jesus gave sermons. Paul did. They were typically not, they were probably shorter than the one I'm giving you right now. But what was prescriptive and what was descriptive in the New Testament is that there was dialogue. And when many of Paul's messages that he gave, there was dialogue. The word is huge. We get the English word dialogue from the Greek word where it talks about him preaching. It wasn't preaching the way we think of preaching. It was a give and a take. In other words, people asked questions. They went back and forth. When do we get a chance to do that? Now, you have a small group Bible study. You host that, correct? That's open to anybody? Everybody. Okay. Can you accommodate 20 people? Can you accommodate everybody who's in this room? Okay, you heard it. He said it, not me. They're just telling you, you're all welcome. Now, it doesn't have to be in that context. It could be two people getting together for coffee consistently 
discussing the scriptures. It could be having people over your home and intentionally gathering them together so that when you get together, you can talk about the scriptures. We could talk about football. We could talk about the Giants. We could talk about the Jets. So we don't really want to do that. But we could talk about a lot of different things. But the talking about the scriptures sometimes feels so awkward to us. You know why it's awkward? Because we don't do it very often. It seems unnatural to us. When I was a high school student, you know what I used to love? I would love what would happen. This was, this was a regular experience. I mean, you want to know where, like, I never went to seminary. I never went to Bible college. You know where I got my, my, my teeth cut, as they say? I would be invited over to an elder's home after church with this preacher. And from like one o'clock in the afternoon to the evening meeting, it was like seminary. And we'd ask questions and we would discuss theology and we'd talk about issues. Not everything I thought the person said was like, okay, I'm not sure I agree with that, but that didn't matter. It was the experience of truly being devoted to the apostles' teaching. We glorify God in Christ by being devoted to the fellowship. What is biblical fellowship? Well, Again, when we think about fellowship, we have all kinds of ideas about it. It's one of those words that its real meaning has gotten like Christianized, okay? But like, for example, when was the last time you ever said something like this? Listen, I'm going out Friday night with some friends from work for drinks to have fellowship. Like never. But the word fellowship just means that there's something we have and hold in common. There's something that binds us together. And and the word has different uses in the New Testament and in the New Testament Greek. And sometimes the word has sort of the strength of like a partnership, like a business relationship almost, where you are bound together with self-interest, moving in the same direction, sharing in common the responsibilities, the burdens, the risks, the assets, the rewards of this venture. It speaks of being together in something greater than ourselves. It is not good, God said, for us to be alone. Satan has always had separation, isolation, and alienation as his agenda for the church. If he can separate us, if he can alienate us from God, from one another, even from ourselves. But can we as believers, taking the prescription of Acts 2.42, move beyond the walls and the masks, both literally and figuratively. The idea that we would be willing to share our lives together, becoming part of a spiritual partnership. We glorify God in Christ. Oh, by the way, you could do that at their house, by the way. I'm sure that you have something like fellowship with your meeting, right? It's actually a part of Zoom. Oh, Zoom. Okay, but you can have fellowship over Zoom, right? Good, good. Okay, good. Do you guys gather here in person for the prayer meeting? I was going to ask Rocco, is that, on, is that online or on Sunday or Monday, wherever it was? Thursday? Thursday. It's in person here? 
Yeah, good. Okay, good. So you can do that too. And women, do you get together by Zoom or in person? I'm curious. In person, yeah, okay. So you can do that too. So if you're a guy, you got something to do. If you're a girl, you got something to do. But listen, you don't have to, you don't have to have these like formal meetings. In fact, it's probably sometimes better not to. Because sometimes we get together formally, we act formal. We glorify God in Christ by being devoted to the breaking of bread. Bread is like life. And wine was a source of joy. In Psalm 104, wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Now, I guarantee you that if we were to go back to the first century and go to their breaking of bread, I promise you it looks nothing like what we do. It looked nothing like what we do. Because it was actually a meal. As one author writes, the Lord's Supper was actually a substantial supper with symbolic meaning. While we've reduced the symbolic supper, we've reduced to a symbolic supper with substantial meaning. Now, what we do is, is important. I'm not diminishing that. But it's not a good substitute for what was intended. Sharing life together around a common meal whose Jesus was the center. Day by day, continue with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Think about all of the one another commands in the Bible. Love one another, serve one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, live in harmony with one another, greet one another, encourage one another, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Can't do most of those in the 90 minutes that we're here on a Sunday morning. The only place those things can occur is when we open our lives to one another and open our hearts and open our homes. To share a week meal weekly with others who are not part of your immediate family, you know what? If you're invited, go. And if you're not invited, do the inviting. To me, this is what church looks like. It looks like a group of people gathering together to share a meal on a Sunday night. Maybe it's two or three, maybe it's six or seven, and opening the scriptures together and dealing with life together. It's a group of people gathering together on a Thursday night and having dessert together and then opening the scriptures and talking with one another and praying with one another and discussing life and building relationships so that when we have a prayer request, we can actually just shoot it out on a text and say, look, Here's the group. Could you pray for this right now? But that kind of honesty, that kind of intimacy doesn't happen in a context like this because one, our FaceTime together is less than five minutes. If we're lucky, you have five or 10 minutes of conversation with someone. Trust me, I will never trust you if that's the extent of our conversation. 
I will never tell you anything serious in my life. I won't tell you what my struggles are. I won't tell you what my fears are. I will not tell you what my sins are because I don't know you. We never get past how was your week? What do you do for a living? The only place where I feel safe is when I've met with you week after week, sharing meal with you, looking at your life, you looking at my life. And suddenly I start to say, you know what? I can ask this brother to pray for me because I know him and I trust him. That's what the church is supposed to look like. Not a collection of people gather together once a week and then go our separate ways for seven other days. We glorify God in Christ by being devoted to prayer. I heard this message this past week by an old saint, Boyd Nicholson. That may be a name that you might remember, but he said this, and I thought this is it. Prayer is an everyday miracle. Prayer is an everyday miracle. When we consider what we're doing when we pray, to whom we are addressing, and how he responds to us in prayer, it's a miracle. It's a miracle to consider that this congregation can pray for those things. And there are thousands of congregations all across the United States and hundreds of thousands of gatherings of God's people all across the world. And they are lifting up their voices in prayer and asking him for those things that are there on their hearts. And he is answering and listening to every one of them as if they're the only people asking. How great is our God? Praying together. And of course, the emphasis here is not on personal prayer, but on corporate prayer. It's on the idea that we are praying together. May I be so bold as to make just a small suggestion for your prayer time when you have the requests up? And you can just ignore it if it's fine. I won't, but just a suggestion I have. And that is when the chairperson is up here and the chairman is reading the request that you just stop for just a, a few seconds and say, let us pray for those things that are on the screen. And then just pray silently as a congregation. And then the next slide comes up. Please take a look at what's up in front of you. Let's lift these things up before the Lord. And just give it a minute. And people will pray for different things because their hearts are burdened, but you're all praying together for what's up on the screen. I can tell you what my experience is. Maybe this is yours. And that is we're going through the requests I'm listening about the interests and the thing. Oh, that's interesting. And then I wait for the brother to pray. And then I may pray with him, but then my mind might be wandering. But if I'm told we're going to pray now, even if it's just for a minute, oh, I have a responsibility here. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. When we pray, that's the power that God wants to unleash in us. We exist for the glory of God. Our purpose is to be for the glory of his grace. We do this by being devoted to the apostles' teaching to the community of the saints, to the breaking of prayer and our shared life together in him through prayer. We do these things not to make a name for ourselves. We do these things because they magnify the name of Jesus. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to 
bring before you these thoughts and just ask you to take what is from you and use it in our life to transform us where we've been neglectful or fearful or just resentful. We pray we might confess and repent of our sins and ask you, Lord, to breathe in our lives a new way, a freshness of your spirit's power so that we might be inviting, that we might go when we're invited, that we might take risks, that we might love one another and reach out to one another and build one another up, that you might encourage us and strengthen us and help us, oh God, we pray. Move us out of our comfort zones and help us, Lord, to embrace that which you have for us. Lord, the work is not finished. The laborers are few. And so we pray, Father, you'd raise up laborers laborers even here amongst us. That we might glorify you and whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we might do all to the glory of your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.